Uh, thank you so much, Nick and the team, for really blessing us this morning. Uh, what an encouragement that was. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're uh, carrying on with a series we started last week uh, called The Gospel and Our World. And the goal of this series is quite simple. Uh, that is to see our world through gospel eyes so that we would be a people who live gospel-connected lives. Not inconsistent, hypocritical Christians, but those who, who love Christ as Savior and Lord and who live this life for His glory. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at the topic of the gospel and pluralism. And our focus will be verses 22 to 31 of Acts 17, but for context's sake, Let's read from verse 16 all the way to verse 34. Acts chapter 17, reading from verse 16 to 34. This is God's word. Let's hear it. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who had happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoke philosophers also conversed with him. And some of them said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who, were, who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling, telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which you will judge the world in righteousness by man who he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, 
But others said, we will hear again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Erbogite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Only so far in the reading of God's word, may he reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we come before you pleading the name of your Son and pleading for the strength of your Spirit. And we ask that you would help us to understand your Word and to live consistently in light of your Word. We pray that as we read of Paul in this passage, how his heart is provoked within him as he sees the idolatry all around him, We pray that that would become our desire, that our hearts would be provoked and grieved because we see idolatry all around us as well. And so help us, we pray. Give us grace. Now, even as we listen to this, give me grace. Give all of us grace. All for the glory of your name we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The Roman historian and senator Tacitus said this about Christians. He said, Christians are haters of humanity. What? Haters of humanity. Can you believe it? Well, there's a reason he called Christians haters of humanity. In the early church, Christians lived in a pluralistic society where there were multiple gods, multiple faiths, multiple temples of religion. And at that time, the temples were places of of pride and, and joy. They were the center of society. They were filled with joy and gladness. And therefore, when the Christians spoke out against these temples and refused to partake in this temple worship, they were viewed as haters of humanity, enemies of peace, threats to diversity. Now, I would argue... As Christians alive today, we live in a world where Christians are again being viewed as haters of humanity. Because we are again living in a religiously pluralistic society with multiple gods, multiple faiths, multiple places of worship. In our society, this multiplicity is an ideal we want to strive towards. Our pluralism is is celebrated and cherished by our world And therefore, it seems the only thing that is not cherished, that is not celebrated, is any position that would oppose and speak against this kind of pluralism. Now, I I need to be also very careful here, because there is a sense in which there is a good kind of diversity. There are certain diversities that are good and right for us. We would do well to distinguish between, at least between, sociological diversity and religious pluralism. See, sociological diversity just simply refers to the fact that we are living in a diverse society. Due to immigration and globalization, our world is smaller. And as such, we have diverse races and cultures and languages and value systems and religions uh, all around us. They're no longer foreign. They're no longer distant. No, they live side by side. And as I hope to show, this sociological diversity is good. 
We should be excited as Christians that our world is smaller. But unfortunately, this smaller world has produced what we might call a religious pluralism. Religious pluralism refers to this idea that all religions are essentially saying the same thing. That behind every religion is the same truth, the same reality, the same values. Listen to a good example of this. Gandhi said this. The soul of religion is one, but encased in many forms. He says, I cannot ascribe divinity exclusively to Jesus. He is divine as Krishna, Rama, Muhammad, and, and Zoroaster. And now, to be, for, to be fair, this is slightly changing our world. Many have recognized that these different religions actually contradict one another. And even though they contradict one another, a, a pluralistic sympathy has developed. This pluralistic sympathy is this idea that large numbers of morally good and intelligent people can't be wrong about their belief. And this idea simply states that their religious beliefs is what works for them. See, this pluralistic sympathy often goes hand in hand with a, a pluralistic personalism or, or consumerism where one's religion is a personal matter with simply that which works for that person. Now, if you think I'm making this up, listen to the words, a speech from the Dalai Lama. Now, this is the only time I'll ever quote the Dalai Lama. Don't worry, the last pagan guy I'm quoting. But listen to what he said, and I think this is quite instructive. He said this, Each religion has its own philosophy, and there are similarities as well as differences among the various traditions. What is important is what is suitable for a particular person. We should, uh, we should look at the underlying purpose of religion and not merely at, at abstract details of theology and metaphysics. All religions make the betterment of humanity their primary concern. When we view the different religions as essential instruments to develop a good heart, love and respect for others, a true sense of community, then we can appreciate what they have in common. Everyone feels that his or her uh, form of religion practice is best. I myself feel, not me, but Dalai Lama, I myself best feel that Buddhism is best for me. But that does not mean that Buddhism is best for everyone else. Do you see what I'm talking about? This pluralistic sympathy that, oh, that, and personalism that, that your religion is just something personal for you that works for you. Now, I would argue that this idea, this, this pluralistic uh, religiosity, I would argue that this is the dominant view of our world. Our religious beliefs are viewed as, as personal preference, something that works for you but not for me, and therefore, as a result, our society not only demands acceptance of religious pluralism, but our world today opposes any position that claims authority over another. See, pluralism has become the new cherished ideal of our world. And therefore, in a world like ours, if you dare speak out against these diversities, you will be viewed as a hater of humanity as an enemy of peace, as a threat to diversity. If you refuse to worship the idol of religious pluralism, you will be viewed as that hater of peace. 
As I hope you can see, that makes it quite difficult for us as Christians in this world. Yet with all of this in mind, let's turn our attention to Acts 17, because Paul in this passage speaks to a society not too different from ours. Paul is speaking to a situation where there are diverse opinions, diverse faiths, diverse ideas about this world and the gods, yet there is a woeful ignorance of the one true and living God. And so Paul here proclaims to them who God is. Paul makes at least, one way to count it, 17 statements about who God is in this passage. And see, Paul is primarily concerned here with the true knowledge of God. See, he proclaims you the true knowledge of God so that those listening would turn from their idols to the living God. And as I hope to show, Paul starts with the true knowledge of God so that his audience can have an accurate understanding of themselves, of their world, of their problems, and ultimately of the only solution available to them. Or, or, or another way to say that is this, Paul in this sermon offers them a biblical worldview a worldview that exposes and opposes their pluralism. And so as we consider this passage, I want you to see four truths about God, four truths that have tremendous implications for us as Christians as we live in a pluralistic society. The first truth about God is this. We need to recognize that God has made all things. God has made all things. You see in verse 24 to 25, Paul starts by boldly declaring that there is one God. And he unashamedly announces three core truths. The first is that this God is the creator of the world. See, unlike pantheism that says that the world is God and that all that is God is uh, all is God and God is all. And unlike panentheism that says that this world is part of God. Paul here declares that this world is created by God, and therefore there is a distinction between the creator and the creature, and therefore you cannot treat God as if he's a creature, and you cannot treat this creature as if he's God. But Paul also says that this God is not just the creator of the world, he is the ruler of the heavens and the earth. See, unlike paganism, which taught that there was a God of war and a God of the sea and the God of the sky, and unlike animism that believes in gods and powers over regions and peoples, Paul here announces that there is one God, and he is God over all the heavens and the earth. See, this God cannot be domesticated to one area. He cannot be restrained and, and relegated to one area, not even just a temple. See, he's the ruler of the heavens and the earth. But Paul also says that he's the sustainer of humanity. Unlike polytheism with its sea of gods and gods that are dependent upon man, and unlike Unitarianism, where a single person God creates because he needs something, he needs followers, Paul announces that, that God is independent, self-existent, self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our obedience. He doesn't need our service. In fact, quite to the contrary, we need Him. He gives everything we have, our life, our breath, everything. Is from him. Do you see how Paul here, right off the bat, opposes all the worldviews around him? 
by proclaiming the true knowledge of God, one who is the creator, the ruler, and sustainer of all things. Now let's, let's stop and think about some of the implications of this for us in our world. If there is one God who creates and sustains and rules all things, then you cannot relegate this God to personal preference. You cannot relegate this God to what personally works for you. Now, He is the God of the Christian, and He's the God of the Hindu, and the Muslim, the Buddhist, and the tribalist. As those who receive life and breath and everything from Him, as those who are created and ruled and sustained by Him, every single one of us are accountable before Him. Every single one of us are His creatures and must answer to Him. And see, this goes against what the Dalai Lama said, right? He, he, he said didn't he, that, that all religion makes the betterment of humanity the primary concern. Yet, you know what Paul says, what his primary is the true worship of the true God. What Paul reveals is that true religion sets God's honor and God's glory as its primary concern. And see, we cannot therefore relegate the truth of God to the realm of personal preference. And that includes the Christian. You can't have this God just on Sundays. No, He's the God of all. And to relegate Him to personal preference is to dishonor this God. But, but there's another implication for us as Christians. If God has made all things, if He's the creator and ruler and sustainer of all things, we need to therefore recognize the common grace of God to peoples of other faiths. We recognize that God has created them in His image. They are given life and breath and everything from Him, and therefore they are valuable to Him, and they need to be valuable to us. Let's recognize that God's grace is given even to the pagan, even to the unbeliever. And that grace is a reflection of God's love to all mankind. And so let's recognize that grace. And, and not just recognize that common grace, but let's use that common grace to draw them to the one and true living God. That's what we see here in Paul. Paul knows that they're created by God. He, he recognizes that they're re very religious. They're seeking after the transcendent. And he uses that reality to point them boldly to the true God. He uses that reality to point them to the God that they've been made for. And see, so it must be with a Christian. Out of his desire to honor God and to love our neighbor, we must not relegate the true knowledge of God to personal preference. Now we ought to see the common grace of God in all mankind and point God's creatures back to Him. That's what we're called to do as Christians. So, so that's the first truth I want you to see. God has made all things and that has significant implications for us. But that leads me to the second truth about God and that is that God has guided all of human history. God has guided all of human history. You'll see this in verse 26 and 28. There Paul moves from theology to anthropology. He moves from speaking about primarily about God to how this God has providentially governed and guided all of human affairs. And again, Paul highlights three core truths. He says, firstly, God created our diversity. Notice what he says. He made from one man 
every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. And see, the idea here is this, our ethnic identity, our, our even our cultural diversities, they're not bad in and of themselves. No, it is something intended and designed by God. And note, the fact that every nation comes from one man states very clearly, therefore, that not one ethnic group, not one cultural group has superiority or preeminence over the other. That's what Paul is facing here. The Athenians thought that they were superior. They thought they were better than other races. Yet Paul here clearly opposes that. Now God has created our diversity. But not just that Paul states that he has created us in our diversity for himself. Paul says that God created, moved every, moved every nation of mankind so that they would seek God and perhaps feel the way to him and find him. See, Paul even says that God is not far from us. Now, now, why does he say that? Well, because we were made for God. We were made to personally know the one true living God. Isn't that all religiosity really points to? No matter where you go, no matter what country or people group you visit, you will find religion. You will find people seeking after God, seeking for the transcendent. Why? Because we were made for God. Just as you hunger and thirst after bread and water, our souls hunger and thirst after the true God. Think of it, doesn't the altar to the unknown God show this? People by nature long and seek for God, so much so they're so fearful of missing Him that they would even make an altar to the unknown God. See, we are all inherently religious. We desire God. See, God has created our, our diversity for Him because we're made for Him. But why are, we religi- why are we so religious? Well, because God has created us. Thirdly, God has created us as His children. Interestingly, Paul quotes from two pagan philosophers because even they recognize that we are God's children. He says, in Him we live and move in and have our being because we are ultimately His offspring. See, we were all made by God and for God in order to be in a relationship with God as our Father. And now think back to Genesis. What did what does Genesis 1.26 tell us? God made us, God said, let us make man in our image and likeness. What does image and likeness mean? Well, if you read Genesis 5, 3, you see that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness. After his image, he named him Seth. See, those terms, image and likeness, are filial terms. They're speaking to to sonship and a son with a father. See, God has made us to be sons and daughters, to know Him, to be in that personal relationship with Him. And so Paul points out here that, that God has created all of us in our diversity for Him because we are His children. Now, again, let's stop and consider the implications of this for us. If this is true, then it carries significant implications for how we see this world. If God is the father of all mankind, the designer of our diversity, then we cannot and must not celebrate and cherish our diversity without the designer of that diversity. We cannot celebrate and cherish it without cherishing and celebrating the one who has made us in our diversity. 
See, to celebrate the gift of diversity without the giver of that gift is to exalt the gift over the giver, and that is at the heart of what idolatry is. See, our pluralistic world, I would argue, has made an idol of diversity because they use our diversity to point us to many different gods instead of drawing us to the one true living God. But see, the thing is, our diversity is right and good only if it leads us to the one God who has designed us for His glory. I think you know Revelation 7, 9, right? We are, told, we are told in heaven that in heaven there's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and all the peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with one loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord, and He who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, our diversity is meant to glorify God. And if that diversity points us away from the one true God, it becomes an idolatry that displeases God. And realize, herein is something of the beauty of Christianity. Christianity doesn't celebrate uniformity, no. To the contrary, it alone meaningfully celebrates diversity because it celebrates the one who has designed us in our diversity in fact, it celebrates the one true God in our diversity. And therefore, we need to see the diversity from God's perspective, something that's good, but something that should lead us to the one true and living God. But, but there's another implication of this for us. If God is the Father of all mankind, the one whom we were made for, then Christians must approach those of other faiths as those made for God. This should create within us boldness and compassion. Those whom we look to, the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the tribalist, the atheist, all of them are image bearers of God, and they were created to know God. See, although Christianity makes exclusive claims, it also makes wonderful, inclusive offers. It calls all people to return to the God that they were made for. It caused them from every nation, every culture, to return to the God that alone can satisfy, that alone can, can give them meaning and peace and joy. See, we need to approach our world and the peoples of our worlds as those made for God. The one who has made them, who governs and sustains them, and ones who will only find joy and satisfaction by being reunited to Him. But that reveals something of the problem, doesn't it? All of us were made for God, yet clearly not all of us know God. Why is that? That leads me to the third thing I want you to see from this passage. The third truth about God, and that is this God has set a day of judgment, or has set a day to judge all ignorance. God has set a day to judge all ignorance. In verse 3, 9 to 31, Paul points out that there's a problem. And the problem is the, the same problem that provoked his heart at first. It's the problem that people are ignorant of their God. Paul explains this ignorance in Romans 1. He says there that we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. He says that we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. 
See, the problem with us is this. Sinful man in pride has exalted himself over the Creator. We have all by nature sinfully sought to exalt self. And see, that's what Paul even alludes to in verse 29. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You see, Paul is pointing out to his audience and us that the problem of our sin is that man has tried to control God. The creature has tried to dictate to the Creator who he is and what he must do. See, this is at the heart of sin. And the result is separation from our God and Creator and ignorance of the one we've made, been made to know. And so Paul now points out that even though God has patiently overlooked our ignorance, He has stopped overlooking that ignorance. He now calls all to repent of their ignorance because a day has been set whereby He will judge all for their ignorance. And who does this judgment come by? Well, Paul doesn't say it explicitly, but it's very clear. It's by the Lord Jesus Christ. The the Son of God has been appointed to judge the world in righteousness. Jesus says this in John 5, 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See, We need to recognize that the Father has exalted His Son. We ought to worship and adore the Son because it's by the Son that He will judge all people. It's with the Son that each of us has to deal with. And and why the Son? Because the Son is the fullest declaration of the knowledge of God. John 14, 6 and 7, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. In verse 9 it says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show me the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? See, Jesus is the clearest revelation of the true God. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is now to be seen in the face of Christ. And so although God might have overlooked our ignorance in the past, He no longer looks, overlooks it. We are inexcusable now in the light and revelation of Christ. Now again, let's stop and consider some of the implications for us. If God has set a day of judgment, then we need to expose and reveal our sin problem. If God has set a day by which He will judge every single one of us, then we cannot overlook the problem that stands before us and our God. See, see, most people want to downplay sin. Most religions think that sin isn't so hard. They can just try a little bit better. Isn't that what the Dalai Lama said, right? All religions are about developing a good heart, trying to live good, respectable, loving lives. Yet what he and our society fails to see is that we have a bad heart because our heart is dead in sin. And even if we try and develop a good heart, even if we try and fix ourselves by our good moral lives, those good moral deeds are tainted with sin. Tainted with a world of iniquity. See, we cannot merely overlook our sin because we we have sinned against a holy God. And to try and sweep our sin under the rug of good deeds is an assault to this God. And, And therefore, 
we need to boldly declare to the nations that, that there is a sin problem. There is something that separates you from your God. But, but there's another implication. If God has set a day to judge the world by Christ, then we cannot e- also ignore the claims of Christ. Although Paul has been quite gracious so far, although he's acknowledged the religiosity and that God has ordained their diversity, Paul is quite bold here. God has created the nations from one man, and God will judge the nations by one man. And he calls all people to repent. And we need to recognize that this call to repentance isn't something harsh. See this call to repentance as God's loving plea to a fallen world. As sometimes, let's be honest, when Christians speak of repentance, we often do it with anger and arrogance. It's what God does when He calls to repentance. He, he calls us with compassion to be returned to Him. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God with patient, long-suffering love calls people to repentance. And dear Christian brother, sister, we too are called to, with a long-suffering love, to call others to repentance. To call the nations to repentance isn't an act of arrogance and pride. No, it's a call of love. Because you recognize that the living God has set a day of judgment. And, and that living God has, has not just set a day of judgment, but He has provided a living Savior. And, and that's the final truth I want you to see from this passage. The fourth and final truth is this. God has given hope to all those who are dead in sin. God has given hope to all those dead in sin. At the end of verse 31, Paul says this, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, at the end of verse 31 and and in verse 18, Paul highlights and majors on the resurrection. In fact, for Paul, the resurrection is proof that God will judge the nations. Now, may I suggest to you, knowing what we know about Paul's theology, this emphasis upon the resurrection is is good news. Jesus isn't just presented as the future judge. No, he's offered you as the only present Savior of the world. Remember what Paul says in Romans. Sin came into the world through one man, and death spread to all men because all men sinned. And what are the wages of sin? It's death. And beloved, that's where all of us are. That's where the world is. No matter your religion, no matter your ethnicity, your culture, your ideologies, all of us have sinned against God. We're dead in our trespasses. Yet God has given dead men and women hope. He has given them hope through the one who has paid for sin in his death and the one who has defeated death in his resurrection. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul emphasizes the resurrection because that's what a dead world needs. A Savior who has conquered death and who offers life. See, he's the only hope the world has. 1 Peter 1.3 says that God has, has blessed us and he's able to give us living hope, not because of anything in us, any good deeds in us, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
See, Jesus is the hope that God offers the world that is dead in sin. And the implication for us is this. We cannot be silent. We cannot relegate this Jesus to our personal lives. Now we need to declare who He is and what He has done. See, our pluralistic society tells us to keep Jesus personal. Like the Jews in in Acts 4, they tell us, do not speak and teach of this Jesus. And our response should be that of Peter and John. Who said, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Why? Well, they tell us in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they may be saved. And that name, beloved, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we cannot be silent. No, God has set a day of judgment to judge all ignorance. But God in grace has given us hope in the one who has conquered death. And so as I conclude, I want to conclude with this question. Are you going to speak of this Jesus? In the beginning of Acts, or in Acts 17, 16, we see that Paul is provoked. His, his heart is moved to, to an angry grief because he sees the idolatry in the world. The question is, is our heart provoked when we see the nations around us? Is our heart provoked with anger and grief that people made in God's image do not know Him? See, what we see in Paul is a heart yearning that the idols that rule the human heart would be dethroned by the gospel and that the one true and living God would be honored and exalted and worshipped. Do we have that heart yearning, beloved? Perhaps you're here this morning, you're sitting here, and and you don't have that heart yearning, and, and the reason is quite simple. Your heart is still dead in sin. You know nothing of Christ. You know nothing of your sin. You still think you can save yourself by your good deeds. You're developing a good heart, a good character. Well, if so, I want to tell you that there is hope for you, even though you're dead in your sin. There is hope in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. If you seek Him, if you pray to Him and ask Him to give you a new heart, perhaps, even perhaps today, He might save you. Perhaps today, you might even find Him and find salvation. And so I encourage you, turn to Christ. But perhaps you're here this morning and and you're a Christian, but you don't have this heart yearning. And the reason is simple, you've become complacent. You've become at ease in our pews or our chairs. We've become comfortable with our Christianity. Jesus is Savior and Lord, but in the realm of personal life. Know this, you cannot keep Jesus there. He will not be allowed to stick there in your life. Remember what what Jesus says in Mark 8.38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father. And so therefore, no, beloved, God has called us, Christ has called you to bear witness to the ends of the earth. He has called you to proclaim His name because it's in His name that the nations will find forgiveness. And what an opportunity we have. We have the nations all around us. They're our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends. 
See, our world has become smaller, but unfortunately, our witness has become as well smaller. Oh, may that not be true of us. May we take the gospel to our world. May we be a church that emphasizes Christ as Savior and Lord in a world that needs Him. Even if we are called haters of humanity, enemies of peace, threats to diversity, let us make much of Christ, unashamedly declaring that there is hope for a dead world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as your people. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Once we were dead in our trespasses, following the prince of this world, following the desires of the flesh, headlong into destruction. Yet you showed mercy towards us, you saved us, you called us out of darkness, you made us your people. And you did it through people. You did it through an evangelist or a preacher or a friend or a family member or a Sunday school teacher. Dear Lord, you have been good to us. You have given us grace. You've saved us from the path that we were on and you've brought us to know you. And dear Lord, as we've tasted and seen your goodness, we pray that we proclaim to others that there is goodness to be tasted and seen. That there is a God who has made all things and who sustains all things, who gives life to all things. A God who has, in our deadness, given life. A Son who willingly gave Himself for us. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us to be bold for Christ as we go out into this world, as we enter into our society with all its idols and all its false religion, give us a heart for the nations because we have a heart for Christ. So help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name.